0: Well, we'll be continuing our study in the book of Acts this morning, starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. If you're using the Pew Bibles, I believe you'll find that on page 886. <clears throat> I've made a habit since coming here of each year providing a book list of recommendations throughout the year. Different categories and things, we've printed a number of these and put them on the back table. It's also available on the website if you're looking for Christmas gifts for a reader in your life. uh, There's a bunch of these printed up for you. Uh, I try to hit a bunch of categories, but this year I did not have any fiction. I apologize, maybe next year. Well, we will read from 432 up through 5.11, 4.32, up through 5.11. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all that there were no needy persons among them for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need joseph a levite from cyprus whom the apostles called barnabas which means son of encouragement sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles feet now a man named ananias together with his wife sapphira also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, He fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's an oft-repeated theme in books and movies and songs of the power of love, the life-shaping, life-correcting power of love For my fellow Princess fans in the room, there's Miracle Max's true love is the greatest thing in the world. And then he compares it to a mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. So I don't know how helpful that is. Uh, but just continue many other ones. Jack Nicholas's claim that his love for the leading lady makes him want to be a better man. Or Jerry Maguire, Maguire's famous You Complete Me. Or Sleepless in Seattle. Tom Hanks's character described what it was that led him to love his now-deceased wife. He said, well, there's a million tiny little things that, when you added them all up, they meant we were supposed to be together. It was like magic, he said. Or consider the song. Huey Lewis in the news spoke of the power of love. He says it's tougher than diamonds. It's rich like cream. It makes some weep and it makes others sing. It's more than money and fame and things that just might save your life is the power of love. Did you know that Huey Lewis's The Power of Love is one of 16 songs recorded with that exact same title, The Power of Love? Or the Beatles, Love is All You Need. On and on we could go. And I think if we're honest, though, many of these songs and movies and books about love are rather cheesy nonsense. They're this kind of, you know, hallmarky swill. And yet, it's impossible to deny that some stories of love are incredibly powerful. I mean, even the animated movie Up, the love story depicted at the beginning of that movie, has been known to drag tears out of the most emotionally catatonic of men. So see, for Christians, we should be incredibly thankful for these stories about the power of love. Particularly because love can only be made sense of in a Christian worldview. With a Trinitarian worldview of the God of the Bible see, in every other worldview, love ends up devolving into just utilitarianism. Uh, that is, it just, it's useful because of the benefit it grants. In a secular, naturalistic worldview, love is merely our brains firing synapses. And if you read into some of that literature, they'll explain, well, well yes, and, and the reason our brains fired literature is because as we evolved, we saw, oh, loving this thing protected me from death. So love is just an evolutionary mechanism of our brains firing synapses. It's not actually that powerful or wonderful or life-changing. Well, that's very consistent with that naturalistic worldview. But in the Bible, the doctrine of the Trinity grounds love in an eternal necessity. Because in eternity past, you have the one God a Father, Son, and Spirit constantly loving the others as C.S. Lewis put it best, about the dance, where the Father is eternally dancing around the Son, not standing still, making everyone else revolve around Him, but dancing around the Son and the Spirit, saying, oh, look at the Son, oh, look at the Spirit. And the whole time the Son and Spirit are doing the same, oh, no, no, look over here, look over here. Love is an outward adoration. And this is why the Trinity grounding love is essential to understand it is far more than just a feeling. No, it's necessary for life. And that's why Jesus, in John 17, he taught his disciples through his prayer that one of the most powerful ways the world would come to know God, and the God and Father who sent the Son was through their love. Well, I bring up all this about love and about Jesus' prayer in John 17 and the evangelistic power because our passage this morning is going to demonstrate a partial fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. Remember, Jesus, as I said in John 17, had prayed that their love for each other would cause the world to know that the Father sent the Son. And here we see the church in Jerusalem is continuing to grow as they have grace-enabled love for each other. Well, last week I noted how chapters 3 through 5 shows Israel's old leaders in temple had become obsolete. That theme will continue, and we'll work through this passage. The old has gone, and the new has come, and this new covenant community They now form the presence of God, the new temple. They are those who love each other in this new temple community, and that love is going to spill over to the rest of the world. So, my argument for this morning is Christians survive wars within and without through grace enabled love and worship. One more time Christians survive wars within and without through grace enabled love and worship. And we'll walk through this section in these three points here. Benevolence and boastfulness, signs that serve, and assaulting the apostles. So first, we have benevolence and boastfulness. Look again at verses 32 through 37 there of chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So there in verses 32 through 35, we get this summary picture of how this new covenant community was operating. And now, verses 32 and 34, they both tell of how this community cared for those in their midst to the point of they loved each other to the point of some selling land to help to care and provide for those in need. And between those two statements, verse uh, 33 kind of gives us the, the, the ground or the fount from which those actions came. Verse 33 tells us of God's grace enabling them to powerfully proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death for sinners and of his resurrection from the dead, inaugurating the inbreaking of God's in-time kingdom. You see, Luke is showing us the fruit that comes from faithful word ministry. See, so when God's word is rightly proclaimed and empowered by the Holy Spirit, a new covenant community is formed, and that community spills over in love. So the Spirit uses the word as the means of accomplishing God's recreational work, bringing people from death to life, granting them repentance and faith, and that those made alive in Christ love each other well, because they care deeply about one another. Now, the, the story here is not giving us a prescription of what must all Christians do. So it's not offering communism or socialism where everybody has to sell all their possessions. No, this is just telling us descriptively the way that this early community loved each other. See, no one was required to do these things, as Peter goes on to explain to Ananias. No, it was just that many joyfully sought to love one another, even to this point of radical generosity, of providing. And I'll just say, uh, one of the great blessings of pastoring this church is that there are many members here at Bethany who care for others in similar such ways. With no fanfare, there are many members of this church who joyfully care for and love others, silently serving as the hands and feet of Jesus. And I am blessed to get to hear about many of these things that many of you don't hear about, but this church thrives in loving each other well, and it is a joy to be a part of such a community. One, one practical way I would, I would push us to continue to grow in this even more, it actually comes up really well during the holidays. I say, let us strive to be a church willing to share Thanksgiving and Christmas with our fellow church members, and particularly those who, who do not have family in this area. What a better way to share all things than to invite these folks who are our spiritual family into our physical family, to celebrate with us, to to rejoice with us. Well, behind Luke's highlighting of this sharing every good thing is an allusion to Deuteronomy 15.4. In that passage, God tells through Moses that there will be a future day when there will be no poor or needy among you. That's the same word that is used here in this passage, alluding to that there. So in other words, what we're seeing is a partial fulfillment of that Deuteronomy prophecy, that there would come a time in God's covenant community when there would be no poor and needy. They'd be cared for. Here then, notice how the fulfillment is beginning. The fulfillment of that promise from Moses is beginning by people selling land, some of it at least in the promised land, to provide for these poor and needy. That's a fascinating thing to think about. They're selling the promised land. How can they do that? Well, I would say because, as we've been learning, the true land of inheritance is the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, as we see over and over again. And so what you're seeing here is the physical land is no longer the ultimate inheritance they care about. They happily sell those plots of land to provide for the needs of the people here because their true eternal home, their true inheritance is the new Jerusalem the one that the local church gathers in every time we worship, and the one we will partake of for eternity, the eternal promised land. Well, we're given one specific example after this introduction of kind of the overview of how they were loving each other with Joseph or Barnabas. And this example of this man, Joseph, again, he said he's a Levite, so he's a priest, but he's from Cyprus, so he's a Greek-speaking Levite. Uh, so probably he never served at the temple. He probably grew up outside of Jerusalem, but something has brought him back into Jerusalem. And Barnabas is, sells a piece of land, and he lays it at the apostles' feet. They all say, so they all lay it at the apostles' feet, just trusting their God-given leaders, use this as you see need. Well, But notice what it says, the apostles called him Barnabas. I think the NIV is helpful. It puts us in a little bracket explaining what that is. And I think the reason it does this, and it highlights this little nickname that Barnabas got, because his name was Joseph, but he goes forward in the story being called Barnabas, is because it's setting up the next story of Ananias and Sapphira. Let's look again at verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but uh, brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that uh, you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now we're not told, but perhaps it was a little bit of jealousy. Uh, maybe you know, this Joseph character had come in, he'd been given a special nickname by the apostles called Barnabas, a son of encouragement, and perhaps they wanted to earn a special nickname, a special place in the church, some recognition. recognition. The text doesn't tell us explicitly, but that certainly is human nature. They obviously intended to make it seem that they too had sold a piece of land and given every bit of the proceeds over to the church. They longed to be boasted in, and so they deceitfully boast. Well, clearly the text is implying something here, some desire to be recognized. And so they sell this piece of property... And Ananias comes in and lays the money at Peter's feet. Maybe he even tells a bit of a tale. Oh, it's such a joy to get to sell this piece of property. We weren't really using it. Here you go, Peter. Just use it for whatever you need. Again, Peter's clear. There was no requirement. He didn't have to sell the property. He didn't have to give the money. He didn't have to give any of it at all, let alone all of it. The issue was his deceit. But that does raise a fascinating question of why does God strike Ananias and Sapphira dead for a lie? Particularly a silly lie in the grand scheme of things i mean especially in our world that worships niceness this seems to be very much the wrong way to grow a church of how to win friends and influence people does it not well let's have some explanation peter says that rather than being filled with the spirit ananias was filled with satan proving he's not a genuine christian and though filled with satan ananias is completely guilty clearly as his death shows But what are you to make of these comments about Ananias lied to the Holy Spirit and lying to God? How how do you lie to the Holy Spirit and lie to God? What's the point there? Well, to understand this, this is why Sam read earlier and led us in a prayer of confession from Leviticus 10. You see, the sons of Aaron, as we saw in that passage, they did not worship God as he had prescribed. And so because of that, God struck them dead. Notice what I've been arguing the last two weeks. The new and true temple of God is the local church where God's people gather, where God is rightly worshipped. The lesson is the same. If you play around with God's presence in the old covenant in the temple, in the new covenant in his church, judgment is awaiting you. That's the point. To attack or lie or attempt to use the local church, the place of God's holy presence for personal aggrandizement, is to defile God's holy temple and it is to welcome judgment. That is why Jesus will confront uh, later Paul, who was attacking the local churches, saying to him, you have attacked and persecuted me. To attack the local church, to use it for our own selfish ends and means, is to attack God. It is to mock Jesus. Similarly, an Old Testament example might be Uzzah, who reached out to touch the ark of God's presence. And just touching the ark, he was struck dead because he treated the holy presence of God as common. Well, now God's holy presence dwells in a people who gather to worship him. And Ananias and Sapphira's attempt then was to use God's new temple for personal promotion. And it was met with swift judgment. Ananias drops dead, is carried out, and buried. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in, and Peter doesn't, doesn't change up the drill. He just asks her one simple question. Did you sell it for this amount? And she drops dead as well which raises, again, all sorts of questions. why, Why didn't he tease it out of her? Why didn't he... Why? Well, we're told that after both of their deaths, great fear seized them all. It seems that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees God's particular act of judgment here as a way of protecting the covenant community something that reminds us of the sin of Achan in the Old Testament. After they come into the Promised Land, Joshua leads them, and Achan and his whole family have to die for his sin of stealing some of the things that were put under the ban. So that's the, the outline of why this is in the text. But let's ask some questions. Why does this text make us so uncomfortable? Maybe you ask it another way around. Could it be because or why is it that American Christians tend to view God not so much as an all-consuming fire, but as a lightly flickering, mildly pleasant-smelling candle? Why is it that American Christianity tends to have such a low view of the church where God's presence dwells compared to God's view? One theologian highlighted how the American tendency is to make God small has resulted in this. It has resulted in many proclaiming a God without wrath, brought human beings without sin into a kingdom without judgment, through the ministrations of Christ, without a cross. We don't like this idea of judgment very much. Now, in this room, there's small chance there's anyone who would deny the cross. So so maybe we think about the other ways that we diminish or downplay God's just wrath, as Sam served us so well in his prayer. Ah, What are the ways where we treat lightly the worship of God? What are the ways, maybe even just reading this passage, i, I just a test, you don't have to raise your hand, I will, uh, you read a passage like this and just go, ah, turn the page, I want to move past this story, I want the other parts, the, you know, the cuddly Jesus, do we not? I think it's worth pausing and thinking deeply, has our American consumerism led us to treat God and his church primarily as someone in some place that can meet our felt needs? It's far more about us being comfortable with God and comfortable with his people on our own terms. I mean, that's what Ananias and Sapphira were doing. They were seeking to use the church for their purposes, not for God's. What about us? What are the way that we use God's church, his place of his holy presence, to meet our personal needs? Another uncomfortable portion of this passage is that when, why we tend to want to move past it is because we live in a rather modern, you know, uh, t- age of anti-supernaturalism. Just, uh, this whole idea of the supernatural just really strikes us as strange. I, I, I definitely heard people try to say, well, God doesn't act like that anymore. Are you sure? Because Paul's going to write to the church in Corinth that some of you are abusing the Lord's Supper and so you have died. Sure, it seems like God continued to act that way for a little while longer at least. And even if there's near, God nearly never acts in this way again, of bringing immediate judgment of which we could have no proof, well, at the very least, we know that those who abuse God's church, they will face the judgment. Friends, I think we should say may God have mercy on those TV preachers who fit into this category well, who use the church, who use the message of the gospel for their own propagation. God is not mocked. Just because he does not bring judgment immediately, even though he very well might, and we just don't know about it, it doesn't mean he's forgotten. Well, Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty two 22-23, that many will say to him, one day, on that last day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons and perform any miracles in your name? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I think the first lesson that Ananias and Sapphira teach us is that we must have a fearful awe of God, and we must honor and reverence and respect his church. A second lesson I think that we learn from this is that spiritual warfare is real. A Satan filled his heart. I don't know how much more real it gets than that. The devil is at war with God's people, and he will happily use those who want to look like a part of the church for his evil purposes. Again, I think one of the, modern failure, or the failures of our modern age with all of our scientific advancement is that we can tend to just quickly skip past the idea of spiritual warfare and attacks. Now, we shouldn't have this idea that everything is blame it on the devil attitude. I don't think that's helpful at all. Ananias was guilty. Uh, he, he wasn't tricked in, in such a way to where he had no culpability, no. But we also would be foolish to act as though spiritual warfare is not a continuing reality as we'll consider more later. No, we're told the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for those he will devour. And so we must be those who are regularly clothed with the armor of God, to be those who see that our warfare is not according to flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And friends, before we react to perceived frustrations in the church or threats, we need to make a habit of prayerfully asking, could this be spiritual warfare? Could, could be the reason this particular issue is stirring us up so much is because of spiritual warfare? A doing show can shift the way we think about challenges and confrontations and difficulties in the church. See, I think if we tend to just forget about spiritual warfare, then the frustrations in the church can cause us to spin, think all kinds of things. And it's precisely that kind of response that the enemy would love to have us take, hoping that he can get us to ignore patient prayer and open dialogue. A third lesson flows from the second one. John Stott put it this way, if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church from force without, his second is to destroy the church from falsehood within. See, Ananias and Sapphira were lying for their own personal benefit, but the devil was seeking to use it not just so they would die. He's trying to destroy the church, to sow seeds of destruction. So David Peterson notes, This narrative warns against anything that hinders the expression of unity, love, and holiness in the fellowship created by the Spirit. Again, the greatest weapon the devil can wield against a local church is seeds of disunity. And in this instance, it was a selfish lie. But it could be any other sorts of things. And members of Bethany, this will be the the greatest threat we face in the years ahead. It's not from uh, external oppressions. Oh, those may come. But no, the the greatest threats are those from the inside. Whether desiring self-promotion or whether spiritual warfare leads to having the wrong kinds of conversations, making it so much easier to talk about someone than talk to them directly. At one level, all of that is because the devil's best weapon against this church is to sow seeds of doubt and disunity seeking to destroy his people. Here in the early church, God's swift judgment against this behavior shows God's passion for his love for his bride. He will judge those who harm her. And so may God make us a people who do all we can to fight for unity and love and holiness, assuming the best, considering could this be spiritual warfare, why this is stirring up, with God's special protecting judgment having been carried out, now we see the result of what this church purified by God and seeking purity is able to do for God's glory in our second and shorter point. Look here, at verses 12 through 16. Well, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Well, we see this outward ministry... Of God's unified Church we read again all the believers met together that's in the local church in Jerusalem and they met together in Solomon's colonnade. now there's this kind of big portico area that was just outside the gate of the Gentiles so it would have been easy for them to have both Jews and non-Jews there gather in that place at this point we're thinking maybe eight ten thousand people are gathering there it says all of the believers gathered together there and we read that it is from these gatherings And flowing out from them, that the apostles were performing signs and wonders. And then you get this tension. On the one hand, it says that no one dared to join them, so there's this fear of this gathering. And yet, verse 14 says, and yet, as there's more and more being added. So, so verse 13 is not saying that there was so a fear that there was clearly no growth, no, but it's showing you these two tensions that are playing out in the society. And those are two wise tensions that a church should have. On the one hand, a church should make the, the world around it uncomfortable. Because our message is that you repent and trust in Christ or you will be judged, as Ananias and Sapphira experienced. Uh, But our message is also one, is that you can come and repent and trust in Jesus and be saved. And so that's going to always create this tension with the culture. Well, that's what we see playing out here, is that on the one hand, there are those who are fearful to join, and yet there is still growth. God is still using his church to grow. Well, what should we make about this, the signs and wonders that are continuing on, uh, that are are happening all over the place? I mean, to the point of laying people in the street and walking and having, hoping his shadow falls on them. Now, some commentators have noted it doesn't say that Peter's shadow actually healed anyone. Uh, It it could be. We're not quite sure. But then the next verse says, clearly, everyone who did come to them was healed and the demons were cast out. Well, Christians disagree on whether or not or to what degree signs and wonders continue particularly in relation to what's called spiritual gifts. One thing that all Christians must agree on is that God is sovereign, and nothing him hinders him in any way. If God wants to do a miracle, that's just God doing what he does. And so nothing changes that. The question is, is whether or not these wonders done by the apostles, were they passed on in the form of spiritual gifts, like in 1 Corinthians 12 or 14 or Romans 12? Well, to get into that full debate would take us too far afield, but let me make just a couple comments. As was in the case in Jesus' ministry, miracles and healings serve as visual proof and evidence for the power and truth of the message. And this is not only true in the New Testament, it's also true in the Old Testament. So let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, Moses goes up before Pharaoh, and what does he say to Pharaoh? Speaking for Yahweh, let my people go. They are God's people, not your people, Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you think that you're a God, and you think these are your people, But no, they're not. They're Yahweh's people. And he says, let my people go. Then what do the wonders do? The wonders prove the message that Yahweh is God and they are his people. So see, how do wonders work? They serve the message. Uh, This happens a number of times. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is when Elijah stands off with the false prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Love this story. Uh, Elijah has been crying out against King Ahab for quite some time. And finally, Ahab, they they request a standoff. So Ahab's going to send his 450 prophets of Baal to meet Elijah on Mount Carmel. And he calls all of Israel to behold what he is certain will be a great victory. And so uh, they, they show up at Mount Carmel there and they, they plan to put a bull here and a bull here. And, and Elijah says, Okay, you 450 prophets of Baal, you prepare your altar and your bull and then cry out. And, and when Baal you know, hears your cry, you can ask him to go ahead and burn the offering. And then I'll do the same thing. Well, the prophets of Baal get out and they, they get going. And then we read that from morning until noon, they were crying out, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, there was no one who answered. And so at noon, Elijah begins to mock. Oh, maybe you need to cry out louder. I mean, I mean you know, perhaps your God cannot hear you. Maybe he's hard of hearing. Maybe he took a nap. Keep going, keep going. And so they cry out all the more until the evening sacrifice. And finally, that's when Elijah sets up his altar. He takes 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and he builds an altar with a big trench around it, and he cuts up the bowl and puts it on the top. And then he tells them to take jars he takes four jars of water and he has them poured out three times 12 again that number's pretty important and those 12 jars of water entirely drought you know douse the whole thing and fill up the trench around this altar with water and then Elijah prays and the fire comes down and consumes the bull and the wood and the stones and even the water in the trench and all the people responded to this miracle and wonder saying what Yahweh is God Yahweh is is God. The miracle serves the message. Uh, We could give many, many other examples. But so I would say that I think when we have this in, in, in view, signs serve. So the purpose of signs is to serve the message that God is declaring. In the Old Testament, the message was that Yahweh is Lord, and the signs serve that message. And here the message is Jesus is Lord. So the signs serve the message. But signs were relatively rare in the Old Testament, and so I think they're relatively rare today. That is not at all to say God can't do whatever God wants to do. It's just to say is that's probably what we should expect. Well, look again at verses twelve through fourteen, real quick. Twelve through fourteen, we see the apostles perform many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together there in Solomon's colonnade, and no one dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Already talked about that, so there's this tension growing out, but now look at verse 16. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick, and they're tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. I think this verse 16 is actually showing us that now, first of all, the gospel's going beyond just Jerusalem. It's starting to go out to Judea, which is what Jesus said was going to happen. But also... Notice, these crowds gathering from around Jerusalem are bringing sick and demons are being driven away, which reminds us of Luke 10, 18. After sending out the 72, they returned, talking about how the demons were subject to them. And Jesus said at that point, Luke 10, 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The point is, God's kingdom is advancing. Satan's kingdom is retreating. But it does raise a question for us. Is demon possession still something that happens Today? Well, again, big topic, but let me try and offer some summary thoughts here. First of all, it's worth remembering, what did Peter say about Ananias? Satan filled his heart. Well, that sure sounds like a demon possession to me. Uh, The difference is is that Ananias doesn't do the kind of typical demon possession thing that you're used to with the superhuman strength and the the drooling and all that type of stuff. So I think the problem is we've tended to think about demon possession as only the, the real crazy things and the tossing around in the fire. I mean, Peter said Satan filled Ananias' heart, so... So I think that's a part of the problem, that we've overly pigeonholed what demon possession could look like. And here's the thing, in our modern Western world, we tend to be radically skeptical of the supernatural anyway. So one of the worst things Satan could do is do a whole bunch of radically supernatural things and make people think about the supernatural again. It's a far better strategy for the devil to keep us not thinking about supernatural things. Now, as for demonic activity that is more supernatural, ah, I've had missionary friends who live in other parts of the world that are far more spiritualistic and animistic, and they tell very different stories. So see, in cultures that are entirely committed to supernaturalism, yeah, it makes sense for demonic activity to take on that more radical possession, and instilling fear in people. But I would say in the West, and probably not only in the West, but going back a long time, the kinds of possession that typically take place are the ones much more like Ananias. For example, go listen or read some of the rhetoric of a Hitler, a Stalin, a Kim, a Mao. Try and tell me that is not demonic. Go and consider the heinous evils that have been done in societies around the world and tell me that is not inspired of Satan. In fact, I'd be prepared to make a very long, detailed argument that Revelation 13 and 14 is showing us that very thing, that the vast majority of world rulers that have done horrendous, wicked, awful things are demonically inspired. They are puppets of the dragon serving in the form of beasts, either beasts of government or beasts of religion. So yes, demonic activity most assuredly continues to happen. What all Christians should agree on is that it is impossible for a true Christian indwelt by the Holy Spirit to be possessed. A person is either indwelt by the Spirit or by Satan. That's what Peter said. He has Satan, not the Spirit, as all the rest of the Christians did. And that contrast is made there. And yet, as we also mentioned in the first point, spiritual warfare is very real, and possession is not the only tool in the devil's tool belt. So that's why, again, as we said earlier, it's been well said that we must be those who are wearing the whole armor of God. And, one commentator said, the whole armor of God isn't something we quickly do in reaction to satanic manifestations. Rather, the putting on of the whole armor of God is a daily prerequisite to dealing with demons. And again, go back and reread Ephesians 6. Guess what you're going to find? Every single one of the verbs there, it's in the Greek southern, y'all. It's all y'all put on the fruit, or the, 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 the armor, right? So, so the point is we do this in community. We require other Christians to help us to get suited up, to become ready. Again, our American individualism is horrible for the Christian life. It is deadly. Biblical Christianity is a corporate reality, committed together, to suiting up together, to fighting spiritual warfare together. Oh yes, every individual must repent and believe, but every individual is called to join and commit a local church where they can walk out and do the you-alls of the New Testament. Well, finally, we see how this witness of the church in Jerusalem is expanding again beyond the city proper. So that's why I've said that this passage is showing us that Christians survive wars within and without through grace-enabled love and worship. These first two points have shown us that Christians survived wars within through grace-enabled love, and now we'll see wars without through grace-enabled worship. This is the assaulting the apostles. Let's look at verses 17 through 26. Then the high priest and his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, and as they had been told, they began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles replied, "'We must obey God rather than human beings. "'The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, "'whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. "'God exalted him to his own right hand "'as prince and savior, "'that he might bring Israel to repentance "'and forgive their sins. "'We are witnesses of these things, "'and so is the Holy Spirit, "'whom God has given to those who obey him. "'When they heard this, they were furious "'and wanted to to put them to death.' But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Judas appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and they came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in the revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts, From house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. As I've been arguing, this larger section, we're seeing a transition from Israel's old leadership, an old temple, to the new temple of God's presence in the church and their new leaders. And we see that here. These obsolete leaders are powerless to thwart God's purpose. They try, they arrest the apostles, assuming the 12, and put them in jail. And God says, no, I'm going to let you out now. And go and tell them about the words of life. These obsolete leaders have cultural power, but God is showing their complete loss of power as far as the people are concerned. So, verse 26, they use their force to bring them in, um, and yet they don't find them in the jail. There's a wonderful little irony and kind of puns going on here where, uh, well, wait a minute, we arrested them, so we have control. No, you don't have any control. God has control. And then there in verses 27 through 32, the blindness of these leaders is stunning. Because they declare, are you trying to make us guilty of this man's blood? You are determined to make us guilty. Well, they were the ones who said those very things to the people. They stirred up the people to say before Pilate, Israel declaring, his blood be upon us and our children. And now they have the cheek to say, oh, you're trying to make every, this blood fall on us. And you just see the problem. They're completely obsolete leaders. They're on Satan's side, not God's side. Well, Peter stands up for the apostles, again, assuming the 12, and he kind of takes the lead to declare that we must obey God rather than men. They must speak the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead, the Jesus whom you killed by hanging on a cross. God exalted this Jesus to his right hand as, it says, prince and savior, and then the NIV reads, that he might bring Israel to repentance. The problem is, that's not what the Greek says. The ESV gets it exactly right. It says, God exalted him to his right hand to give repentance to Israel. There's no might in the Greek text. Here, repentance is the gift of God. Now, if you do a word study of the 56 or so times that the, the verb and noun form of repent is used in the Bible, you'll find four or five of them are like this, where it's showing us that God grants repentance. 2 Timothy 2:25. God grants repentance that leads to life. So in those four or five passages, Repentance is a sovereign gift of God that leads unto life. And yet the other 51 or 52 passages is where repentance is a command, something that we must do. You are commanded to repent and trust in God, which is why immediately after Peter says in verse 31 that God will bring Israel to repentance, 32 says, and we are witnesses of these things so so that the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who will obey him, both are necessary. God must grant repentance and we must repent and believe. God must give it and we must exercise and obey it. There's no separating those two things if you want a biblical understanding of repentance. And the same picture plays out with faith as well, where faith is both given, God's the author of faith, it's a gift, and yet also it's a duty, which is why uh, it's been well said the, the founding statement of faith of this church calls repentance and faith both sacred duties and inseparable graces they are both gifts from god and actions we must do and peter plays us out here to show them that true israel is defined as those who repent and trust in jesus they will bring israel to repentance and what's wonderful though about peter's message is he declares this to these leaders trust in jesus repent and obey notice he's still holding out the gospel to these obsolete, fake leaders. He still is declaring to them, you're right, you killed Jesus. But he's continuing his message from the last time he stood before them in the last chapter. And there is hope found in his name, in no other name. Turn and repent and trust in Jesus. That's his message. And that's actually the word rendered prince there is the same one that draws from Hebrews twelve two, where it speaks of Jesus as the author or pioneer of our faith. He's declaring the only name by which salvation can be found. As authors of Hebrews will go on to say, because it is in Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sat down at the right hand of the Father. It is that Jesus who now sits as high priest and intercedes for all those who repent and believe in him. It is that Jesus who is the good shepherd, who will not lose any of his sheep for whom he laid down his life. In short, Peter declares the gospel to these wicked, obsolete, obsolete leaders. Why? Because that is what he is called to do, to declare and witness to this incredible truth. And friend, that is the same for you here today. If you are not a Christian, the message is the same. Turn and trust and repent and believe in Jesus, and you will find him to be an all-sufficient Savior. Well... Sadly, the response of these leaders, though, proves that they actually hate Jesus. They don't love him. Uh, Gamaliel's little speech is is a fascinating little speech because, on the one hand, uh, Gamaliel shows some biblical wisdom. Well, if this is from God, then you're not going to be able to stop it. And if it's not from God, it's just going to cancel itself out. Don't worry about it. But... Gamaliel is a fascinating case study. It says he was honored by all the people. Uh, One of the Mishnahs writes something about when Gamaliel died, they said that all all honor went out of Jerusalem. Like he was that beloved, you know, Paul's mentor as well. But Gamaliel provides this incredible case study of pragmatism in leadership. I heard Sam include that in his prayer. It cracked me up because that's precisely what Gamaliel does here. Notice what Gamaliel does not do. He doesn't even consider if Peter's sermon is true. He doesn't even attempt to see, could this Jesus be the one that he's talking about? He doesn't lead them to consider the claims being made by this preacher. Instead, he wants to keep the status quo. Gamaliel's concern is he wants to do what works. He wants to keep the peace. That's what pragmatism is all about. So his leadership is not biblical leadership. He doesn't even attempt to consider those truths. No, instead, his is a pragmatism with a sprinkling of biblical principles. And hey, it works. Because look, the Sanhedrin had incredible power. I mean, they, they were stewards of the temples, one of the great wonders of the, of the ancient world. They wanted to keep the peace. Let's just keep doing what works. But biblical leadership, as we're seeing from the apostles, is this. We must always be defined and refined by the word of God. So we need to constantly be moving towards further and further biblical faithfulness. And that's why Peter's refrain is, we must obey God rather than men. We'll finally look at verses 41 and 42. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. And Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. The standoff is complete. Israel's old, obsolete leaders have threatened and God has delivered his 12 apostles. Though they were whipped, they were scourged, Israel's old leaders were in a murderous rage. It said there, they longed to kill them. And yet God uses the speech of Gamaliel to put just enough calming effect to let them live to die another day because they will die another day for their faithful witness to Jesus. But they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. So Christian, how about us? Do you consider it worthy of rejoicing when cultural pressures are paraded before you in the news? But standing for the truth means you're going to feel pressure. How how do you respond when you see the culture seeking to overturn Christian values? How do you respond to political defeats? Are you tempted to flee for an alleged new promised land with better political ramifications? Or will you endure for the name? You see, I opened by thinking about the way that our culture worships love. We love love, but biblical love. Looks like this, is that after being beaten for the name, the easiest thing in the world to do would be to flee. But because they love God so much and they have such a love for the lost around them, they press on day after day in the very temple those guys rule, they continue to proclaim the name. See, friends, Christians survive wars within and wars without through grace-enabled love and worship. Grace-enabled love because we need the Spirit to help us to love each other well because we're sinners who are gonna sin against each other. So we need the Spirit to help us to press on and we need grace-enabled worship to be those who even when suffering things like this, we're still able to turn and say, thank you that we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. So church, how about for us? This whole section is answering their prayer that they prayed at the end of chapter four. They didn't pray for safety. They prayed for boldness and their boldness led to many more coming to know the king and to them being whipped. How about for us? Church, will we pray for boldness? Will we pray that God would graciously enable us to withstand wars within and wars without? All for the praise of the name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the example of many faithful leaders who've gone before us, those constantly seeking to be led by your word and to proclaim the wonderful message of Jesus. Father, would that be true of us, we ask. And we pray that as we leave this place and live in these weeks of holiday season and Christmas time, Lord, that you would grant us many opportunities to be a light to those around us. Lord, that you might expand the praise of your name. We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.